Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Loved ones, as we continue our sermon series, Walks of Faith, our reading this morning comes to us from the book of Exodus. The common English title, Exodus, was inherited from the Greek word exodos, abbreviated from a fuller uh, description, which basically means the departure from Egypt. Exodus is a book detailing the beginnings and formation of the people of Israel, a chosen people, consecrated and set apart as a holy nation. The main character of Exodus is Moses, Moses, the man chosen by God to lead the Hebrew people out of Egyptian bondage to preside at Mount Sinai, the place where the law is given to the people by God, and to lead the Hebrew people into the promised land. Our reading this morning finds the infant nation of Israel camped at the base of God's holy mountain. Moses has climbed up the mountain to receive the sacred law from God, which Apparently, it's taking a little too long. The people, afraid, hungry, and weary, need something to worship, something to pray to for relief. So they ask Aaron to fashion a god, our gods, for them, which he does, and the party begins. But needless to say, God is less than happy. So let's turn and hear this beloved story and about what happens next. Selected verses from the book of Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took these from them, formed them in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, these, these are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you, I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why? Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them 
from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath. Change your mind. And do not bring disaster on your people. And the Lord, the Lord, changed his mind about the disaster that he had planned to bring on his people. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets from his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, and ground it to powder. And God had a blessing to the reading of this word. Several years ago, when I was still living in Southern California, I teamed up with a close pastor friend of mine to lead a one-day long-distance bike ride to raise money for a Habitat for Humanity project. Our bishop at the time had dreamed of building a Habitat house solely funded by United Methodists in the conference. And so my friend and I, with a goal of raising $30,000, we recruited experienced cyclists from local churches who could make the 112-mile ride from Orange County to San Diego. Now, the key words here, of course, were experienced and cyclists, which, as it turned out, were very loosely interpreted by many of the 35 riders who showed up to worship or to to ride that day. Uh, I'm sure many of them were experienced in something, uh, but... Cycling was not one of them. Some thought they were uh, cyclists, but the ability to actually stay upright on a bike and pedal without falling over was not exactly the minimum standard that we were aiming for. Um, When the group assembled in the parking lot at a local church that morning, we immediately knew that it was going to be a long day. Some riders showed up in denim cargo shorts, and the word chafing immediately came to mind. <laughs> and they were, riding, they were riding bikes that squeaked just when you looked at them. They just, and some rolled in on these burly mountain bikes with those massive knobby tires, despite the fact that this ride wouldn't cross a single dirt trail. I was trying to keep an open mind about this and not be super judgy. But when I spotted a rider actually duck taping his seat post to his bike frame to keep it from, I knew we were going to be in trouble. And so before we embarked on our journey that morning, my friend and I sized up this motley crew of cyclists. And really the only thing that we could say was, Lord have mercy. (laughs) By mile 18, that duct tape seat fell off and tumbled across the asphalt. 
By mile 30, that squeaky bike gasped and sputtered and snapped a chain. By mile 50 or so, I think we had a half dozen punctures. But by mile 60, halfway up the steepest climb, which really wasn't that steep, a Torrey Pines grade, one rider actually came to a sudden and complete upright stop in mid-pedal. It was like he had just been suddenly frozen in time. And for a full three seconds, he actually just sat there on his bike, balanced, stuck on this incline until he finally let up a gasp and tipped over in cartoonish fashion. And I remember seeing that dislodged water bottle just roll all the way back down the mountain. Some journeys in life begin with the greatest intentions, the highest hopes, only to quickly unravel before we ever reach our destination. And this is how I think in those moments we discover who we as people are. We've all experienced these moments. Maybe we didn't count the costs before we set out on a project. Or maybe somewhere along the way, life just happens and we were ill-equipped in the moment to deal with whatever obstacle or challenge or detour we came face to face with. The story of Moses is about a story of one leader moving his people across far more than 112 miles that day, guiding them from the mud pits of Egypt to those rivers flowing with milk and honey in the promised land. This would take him something like four decades. And it had, uh, it had occurred to him, I'm sure, at some point along the way that if, if it were left up to him, these were not the people that he would have chosen to be journeying through the wilderness with. But we know that these are the people that God had given them him. And these were uh, the people that God had given him to love. They had whined and balked and complained every step of the way. They complained about being hungry and when Moses gave them manna, they complained about the manna. They complained about the lack of water and the weather and the route and the scenery. But when they were too far from Egypt to turn around and they were too far from the promised land to believe they'd ever get there, they even complained about the good old days in Egypt when at least they had three square meals a day. They complained to Moses, and this is so important to understand, they complained to Moses because Moses was all they had. They couldn't actually see God, but they could see Moses who had spoken with God. And so whenever they questioned God, it was Moses who stood up to answer for God. And whenever they wondered if God was really with them, it was Moses who would always stand in the breach. And whenever they strained to hear the voice of God over the din of their own complaining, it was always Moses, time and time again, who would say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And Moses wasn't God. But everything they knew about God, they knew because of Moses. And they said, as long as we have Moses, we have God. But then in the middle of their wilderness journey, Moses takes what appears to be an extended vacation up alone on Mount Sinai. And Moses is gone for weeks. He's MIA. Forty days pass and still no Moses. And according to scripture, Moses is up on the mountain getting these instructions 
God is giving him instructions on how to build the tabernacle, uh, how to ordain priests. I'm just guessing, but probably how to balance a church budget and run a stewardship committee campaign and develop a strategic plan. This was like three years of seminary crammed into like six-week boot camp with God. And up there on the mountain, there, this is, there's no kumbaya guitar strumming going on. This is all exhausting, hard work. Because the whole time God is downloading the law and instructions to Moses so that when Moses comes down off the mountain, he'll bring with him a future for his people. But while he's gone, the people down below, they get a little restless. The manna, the weather, the sore feet, the stiff necks, the sunburns. They say we've had enough and Moses, maybe he's not coming back. Maybe it's time to move on. But they can't move on because without Moses, they couldn't tell you the first thing about God or how to get through the wilderness alone. Moses is their source and their intermediary. They had personally never spoken to God like Moses. They'd never heard from God like Moses. They never talked to God. Moses had done everything for them. And now Moses is gone. And they wonder, is God gone too? And so they turn to Aaron, who is essentially Moses' first lieutenant. And they say, uh, Aaron, make for us Elohim. Elohim in the Hebrew, it's translated in our English version as gods in the plural, but it can also mean God, singular, as in God with a capital G. Uh, We don't know. Are the people asking Aaron to create other gods to follow? Or are they asking Aaron to make them a physical representation of Yahweh? Whichever it is, they are asking Aaron to fashion something tangible for them. Because Moses isn't there and they need to see God. And so they say, make for us something that will represent divinity that can go before us. Something that we can see and follow and believe in. They say, we don't care really what it looks like, Aaron, but something gold and shiny might be nice. And for some reason, not only does Aaron accommodate their demands, but he thinks that a cow of all things would be inspiring. In Egypt, back in Egypt, it was the bull that was the symbol of the god, the pagan god Apis. And in Canaan, It was the bull that symbolized the pagan god Baal. We don't know if Aaron is making a a pagan god that the Israelites can now follow or if he's just using some familiar bovine symbol to make a symbol for Yahweh. But either way, this is a really bad move for Aaron. They bring him all the gold that they pilfered from Egypt on their way out of town and Aaron melts it down and he shapes it into, what? A cow? And he says to them, take a look at this. This is something now you can really believe in, a cow. And somebody in the crowd said, holy cow, right? (laughs) It was the first time in human history that somebody said those words, holy cow. And then they throw a party. Because without Moses, without God, at least they have something to see and believe in. And I think that's when the duct tape that held their fragile faith together finally unravels 
and the wheels fall off. That is the part of the story where God tells Moses that this little mountain retreat is over and that it's time to get back down there and bust some heads because God wants to end them on the spot for their idolatry. And who wouldn't blame Moses for wanting to end them too? But here's the beauty of the story, and I think here is what I believe is our call to action over these 4,000 years or so that the story has been transmitted to people of faith. Moses, despite the mess-ups of all mess-ups of his people, will not abandon his people. Moses refuses to condemn them or to destroy them or to walk away from them. Their idolatry is inexcusable, but they are not irredeemable. And I love this part of the story. Moses bargains and negotiates and haggles with God. If anybody ever tells you that God never changes God's mind, here's one more story. Moses says, turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, do not bring disaster upon your people. And he goes on and on and defends his people. And scripture says the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring upon his people. And then Moses goes back down the mountain. And as hard as it is, he loves them. I can't imagine a more difficult walk. Has anybody ever disappointed you so terribly and you still had to walk toward them? That walk down the mountain must have been the longest walk of Moses' life. So what we have here is a story about someone who understands, I think. Understands that there are circumstances in the world in which we might be the only face of God that others have ever seen. Here's a story about what happens when others look for that face of God in the world and they can't find it and they despair over the seeming absence of God and so they fashion other cheap substitutes to satisfy their deepest longings. It's a universal human condition. But here's a story about Moses who embraces both the beauty and the burden of leading. He chooses in the moment to be the face of God even when he wonders if people are still looking or if they even care or if it will even make a difference when he goes back down. I was talking to somebody recently who shows up to work every day with her best intentions and her deepest passions, amazing talents. She's a therapist, and she works especially with people who the world has just given up on. And so she considers her work a calling. But every day she has to contend with these relentless forces of resignation and resistance. And sometimes it's the client who doesn't cooperate Sometimes it's the sabotage of families or whole systems that work against the work that she does. A lot of times it's even the cynicism of the people she works with. Most of the time it's all of those things working in tandem. And so she gets weary and she gets frustrated and she gets sometimes sad. And she wonders, should I just hang it up? I asked her, why do you keep doing it? And she says, with the deepest humility... 
Because I know I'm saving lives. Moses knows what his mission is. And it's to to be the face of God for the people who can't see the face of God. And to be the light of God in their darkest moments, even as they dance around a golden calf. As a pastor, I've preached this passage many times, and I always tend to focus and zero in on the idolatry of the Israelites. To ask the question, what idols are we worshiping, and are there any golden calf detectors that can show us what our idolatries are? Maybe this time I read the story and I invite you to read it with me. It's a story about not so much Israel's idolatry, but Moses' fidelity. Despite the mess they've made of the world, he's faithful to them. Moses' mission was to make God real among the people by being a light in their darkness. And I ask you, have you ever thought that you might be the only face of God that someone has ever seen. How might that impact the way you show up every day in the world, especially in a messy, messy world? And every day we are called to walk down the mountain and dare to be the face of God. And this is rarely easy for us. The writer Andre Dubas He wrote about spending a year in a New Hampshire farmhouse years ago. It was this ideal setting for writing, and so he went there. The rent was cheap, and the landlord said, you can have the place. You just have to take care of these eight sheep on the property. But these sheep, just they proved to be more of an ordeal than he had imagined. Every day, he found himself chasing down one of these sheep, or most of them, who had found a way to get out of the the fence and they were impossible to lead back. And after a few weeks, he said, he, became, he came to regret these sheep, resent them. He resorted sometimes to tackling them, sometimes not so gently, and, and bringing them back and hoisting them over the fence, not so gently. And that image struck me as I read it, because sometimes we do more harm than good to the sheep given to our care in the name of love. I think this is why Moses has to spend so much time on the mountain. And it's why you and I should too. We need moments like this in which we experience the intimacy of God. In which we experience transcendence. In which we catch glimpses of grace that help to cultivate grace within us to be shared. Because how can we love others without experiencing God's love for us? How can we ever in this world be light when our own lamps have run out of oil. Our mountain is the place of prayer and meditation. Our mountain is Sunday worship. Our mountain is communion bread and wine. Our mountain is silence and listening, but we can't live on the mountain forever. And Moses shows us that we always have to come back down the mountain to come into the real world and to roll up our sleeves and to somehow find a way to love even the schmucky sheep. And we don't have to do that alone. The truth is Moses didn't do it alone either. When Moses came back down the mountain, uh, Scripture says his face was shining, glowing. 
Moses could show up to the darkness of the world because the light of God was shining through him. Reverend Martin Copenhaver describes this experience that he had with a colleague. His colleague had resigned from his church, and upon his resignation, this pastor said to his congregation, I can no longer attend to the needs of all, all this church any more than I can chase down all the crickets on an August night. And Copenhaver says it occurred to him in that moment, whoever told this person that he could meet all the needs of his church? And then he recalled a, a, a quote from the great theologian John Vesterhoff, who once said that atheism in the modern world is characterized by this popular belief that says, if I don't do it, it won't happen. We don't have to do it all, and Moses didn't either. We only have to come back down the mountain and dare to show up as the face of God for the people of God. Takeaways. Today, you might be the only face of God that someone has ever seen. Faith is forged up on the mountain, but it is perfected in the shadowlands. And divine love always, always, always leads us back down the mountain. Let's pray. Holy God, you have, revered, you have revealed to us your word and spirit and in truth. And as we leave this place today, may we not only be hearers of your word, but doers also. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.